to this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And for today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Ryan Harry. And Ryan is somebody that I've known uh, over the past year, almost a year. Um, and I worked for Ryan uh, at the International Tennis Hall of Fame when he was the head tennis professional there. Um, I started in September um, and for the... Um, for about five months um, until he left to uh, start play tennis academy, which we'll uh, we'll get into. Um, I, I I worked for him, and uh, really, he's somebody that I I definitely look up to and respect a lot in the field. Um, view him definitely as a mentor, somebody that I've learned a lot from. Um, I I think back to um, certain conversations we've had about coaching, about um, just interacting with people in general. You know how to best be a professional. Um, as well as things that he's helped me with, such as helping me with my forehand, which has sort of been a lifelong, lifelong journey. Um, and he has, you know, in, in, in certain ways cracked that code or has really, really helped me. And uh, I, I know, um, I know our listeners will really enjoy this conversation. Um, a little bit about his background. Ryan has established himself as an industry leader within the tennis community. His 21-year career has presented opportunities to work at some of the most established clubs within the nation. Most recently, Ryan held the position as head, head professional for the International Tennis Hall of Fame. In February 2021, Ryan launched Play Tennis Academy, a management company designed to bring club-level programming to your neighborhood. These efforts are to provide convenient junior and adult training opportunities at affordable rates. Ryan's career highlights include USPTA Pro of the Year for Rhode Island, PTR Pro of the Year for Rhode Island. Um, He's also been featured in Tennis Channel Magazine, Tennis Industry Magazine, and two developmental videos that are currently featured on Tennis Channel Academy. And now uh, I hope you enjoy our interview with Ryan Harry. And today's guest, we have Ryan Harry. Thank you for joining us, Ryan. Happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's start with um, a little bit about your introduction. To, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you started playing tennis and then, and then how that led to, uh, to coaching? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's pretty, probably a pretty similar story to what you typically hear. Um, you know, I was young. I was about eight years old. And I was living in Southwest Florida, uh, Sanibel Island. Um, and I had a buddy that was playing tennis and he was just doing this, you know, weekly clinic. Um, and actually it was his stepdad that, that taught the clinic and, um, or soon to be stepdad or something like that. At any rate, he convinced me to, to play. And yeah, I was an athlete, loved all sports, loved being outside. Um, so no brainer for me to go try. And, and I loved it. Um, it was funny too, cause, cause I was a little bit of an overweight kid and he would incentivize, uh, the coach would incentivize that the, the, the student that did the best that tried the hardest would get a Coca-Cola and he had this, this fridge in his trunk. Right. And so me being like a Coca-Cola fiend, you know, just addicted. Um, I was like, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get that Coke every single time. So, um, you know, that actually made me oddly enough, fall in love with the sport. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of came and went tennis in my life up until about 13. Um, but, uh, and then, it, then I dove, dove in head first, but yeah, that's how I started. That's very awesome. Cool. And that was, that was, um, at a certain point you moved from Florida to the Cape, right? I did. Yeah. So I moved, um, I moved to Cape Cod when 
at the very end of nine or close to 10. Um, and so when I did that, I really, I wasn't playing tennis. I played for about a year when I was eight, uh, but I played a lot of baseball, a lot of soccer, got into football later on too. Um, and I dove head first back into tennis. I had an, uh, an incident um, when I was 13, I believe I was, uh, a dog attacked me in my, in my yard and actually just mangled my face, ripped apart my lip, uh, actually ate part of my lip. Uh, my eyebrow was split open, everything. It was insane. And I wasn't allowed to go to school. I had all these bandages. So there was a private tennis court or tennis club that I didn't know was private. I didn't even know what a private club was. Um, and I walked up because I was so bored and I had all these bandages on my face and like khaki shorts. And I think I had like a, I think I had like a no fear uh, shirt on, something like that. Um, nonetheless, I did not look like a tennis player. And I walked right in and right into the general manager when I walked into the, the pro shop. Um, and he just looked at me like, what are you doing here? Uh, but he was super nice and let me on, gave me court 16 the whole summer, which was the, um, the backboard court. I convinced a buddy of mine to join me and, uh, we were playing full time the next, next year. That's really cool. That's yeah, and, wild. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I knew part of that story, but, uh, didn't know that that, uh, crazy incident is what actually led you back to, um, playing more tennis. Oh, it once. did. And, uh, Brian, do you remember the no fear logo shirts? Remember the yeah. no fear brand? Yeah. All right. So when I got attacked by that dog, I actually did in fact have a no fear shirt on. I was attacked because a leash broke and it was a neighbor's dog and he was walking away while I was kind of near the dog. I had a no fear shirt. I kid you not of a dog attacking off a broken leash. And when the doctor asked me if I wanted to keep it, cause it was soaked. I said, God, no, man, why would I want, why would I want that shirt? But I wish I kind of kept it for now, you know, put yeah. it up on the wall. <laughs> yeah. And Bad another water. connection to that. Yeah. And another connection to that story is when I was in LA, uh, oddly enough, I got a cold call from a guy named Jim Ahern to work in Las Vegas. And the general manager of New Seabury Tennis Club at the time was Jim Ahern when that happened to me. So he's the one who got me on the court and he ultimately tried to recruit me when they opened the indoor facility in Vegas. And I said, Jim, I got a story for you, man. <laughs> It's funny how funny how that can uh, these things can come full circle. Um, so where did where did your your coaching journey begin? So I got a summer job. So my my coach was his name was Andy Burler growing up in my teens, um, and he encouraged me to go get a job, a summer job because I was always working from the age of thirteen. Actually, I started a paper route. Um, he encouraged me to work at the country club that he was the director of. Uh, so at first I wasn't a part of the tennis scene. Um, I was a part of, um, or that's not true. Actually, at first I was a part of the tennis scene, but I was just cleaning courts. That's all I did. I, I cleaned clay courts, um, or hard true courts, emptied out 10, two steps filled in for hitting with the, uh, the older gentlemen and ladies of the club every now and then. Um, and the other job that I had at night is I would do a setup crew for like, the, the banquet that was happening the night, the next day or the wedding that was happening things like that. And that's how I became a part of that environment. And 
I, when being on court, I just kind of looked around and I looked up to the coaches because I thought it was such a cool job. Like I couldn't believe that people, even though I had a coach, I couldn't believe that I was in the environment where people did this. So, um, yeah, my old Andy used to call me the towel because I would put a green towel on my shirt, uh, my shoulder, and we were only allowed to work 40 hours. And I'd punch out and I'd just keep working. I worked every single day, nonstop. And I went to his office every day and said, give me a chance to teach in the camp, the summer camp. And he said, no. And he just kept saying no. And he said no for a year. And then one day we had the very next, the next summer, we had a coach call out sick called me in his office and, and said, this is your chance, man. He taught me how to feed that very same day. And the rest was history. I was a part of the team. Yeah. That's a really cool story, Ryan. And, um, it, it shows how you had sort of a good coaching example there for you. A lot of those guys were around you. What were some of the things that you saw from these other coaches that you began to adopt, you know, as you began working as such a young, young coach? Oh man, you're a sponge. I'm still a sponge. You know, I fully believe that you can learn from everyone, uh, good or good, bad or indifferent. Um, and I was certainly that way. Then uh, there was, you know, Andy, I looked up to like he was a God, you know, he was an excellent coach for me. He was always adapting his style to, to make sense for that time. And, and that day he was very present. Um, and he's, and, and, you know, that's just the way that he was. And that's the way he is as a father, honestly. Um, you know, he's very caring, very giving. So I just would pick, pick things, you know, keep my own personality. He encouraged that to keep my own personality uh, and just keep growing by watching, doing, um, listening, uh, being a part of it, being on the court with him, being on the court with others. Um, Adam Naylor is another guy that worked there that had a major influence with me, um, who was, who was a big part of, of, of your guy's world. Um, do you know Adam Naylor? Yeah. Yeah. So he was another coach of mine in, in high school. He was great. Yeah, I believe he played for Trinity, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, good player. Good player, great guy. He was the type of guy that didn't want to go indoors to train. You know, he would have you go shovel before uh, <laughs> before you went inside. That's probably why he does a lot of work in the hockey world. He's really comfortable in the cold. I bet, man. I bet. I remember going picking up coffee for him at like five in the morning. You know, he'd always warm us up with those uh, um, reactionary balls and good coach. So at what point, at what point, speaking of warmer, warmer or colder temperatures, at what point did your journey lead you, lead you out West to, to coach out there? Um, I was 20 years old. And I had been teaching at Willow Bend for, I believe it was four years and part of, part of Willow Bend for five years. And I was playing in a pro-am. I had won the pro-am the year before. And, um, and this particular year I got out, I think it was the quarters or semi, something like that. It was a really fun event each year. That side bets and all that stuff. It was just old school. Um, and Andy's brother is a very well-known director of tennis in Indian Wells, California. Um, that, that I, I know I went to his wedding, um, and he had, uh, one of his coaches leave that wasn't coming back and Andy told him about me. And, and so he had a client, uh, fly in to Willow Bend and essentially interview me on the spot. I think she landed in a helicopter, if I'm not mistaken. It was like very, 
very elite level, um, <laughs> very intimidating. But at any rate, she went back and I got a call and said, I got the job. And a month later, I think about a month later, I was, I was going cross country. That is very cool. That is very cool. Um, and how long, um, where, I know, I know while you were on the West coast, you, um, you, you worked at a, a number of different, number of different places. Can you tell us a little more about, um, about some of those experiences? I absolutely will. Cause I, you know, they really shape what I'm doing now, to be honest with you. Um, the first was a country club. The second was a country club. Uh, it's called the vintage club. Um, very well known over there, very respected, uh, very high end, if you will. So uh, really what I was taught there more than anything is the um, level of customer service that needs to happen, you know, really respect people's time. Um, you know, they're there for a reason and they're visiting you for a reason. So that depth uh, really, you know, I really adapted to that depth or really took in that depth of that. And then the other thing that I was taught there is how to handle larger events um, you know, scalable events that could be impactful for a certain clientele. Uh, that was the major thing, along with being in the midst of unbelievable coaches that popped in every once in a while. I mean, Brad, that's where I got to uh, meet and know Brad Stein. That's where I got to meet and know Jose Garris. That's where I got to meet and know all of these legends of the game because they knew Scott. They knew the, uh, the, uh, the area, um, the uh, club rather. It would come in and I, again, I would just do what I don't will have been, just listen, try to be a part of it and, you know, put it to mind. And then, uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, LA was a completely different beast. LA was starting up someone else's company, um, and learning how to do that. And then starting my own company, essentially mimicking what I learned out there. And what, what were some of the things that um, that you learned from that experience of starting your own company and of maybe seeing certain coaches or certain places where um, certain things that you'd, you'd like to repeat or things that you knew, okay, this is something I definitely want to do differently when I do it on my own? Absolutely. I think, I think the independence of it was pretty shocking at the time, you know, not being able to just go into one facility with a bunch of coaches, with a leader. Um, it was, it was basically the opposite. You're trying to get coaches and create that sort of environment without having that environment. Um, and that's something that I'm certainly doing at the moment with each hire. It's how do you create, uh, you know, that team environment when you don't have people around uh, at all times. And it's kind of, uh, what's happening with all of, of business world right now, people are working from home and zoom calls become something that's very important because that's where you get to see everyone. You get to be your own self, your personality, and you get to, to have that rapport. Um, without that, it's, it's a pretty lonely life. Um, so that's what I, I probably took away the most along with a few you know, business aspects. And um, something that I definitely knew I wanted to do maybe a little bit better was for, my, for myself on my own was just to, uh, to bring in that care um, that I mentioned earlier uh, from Scott, you know, make everyone feel, um, you know, more than worth it on the court, make sure that I'm prepared fully to coach them as best I can, um, as well as my guys, my, my team. I think one of the biggest challenges for any business, Ryan, is 
you know, how do you how do you hire? How do you acquire talent? And then, you know, make sure that they fit into what your model is and what, you know, the kind of culture you're trying to, to build. How's that been in this type of environment? Um, because it's hard to get to know people really virtually. Um, do you have specific things you're really looking for as you begin to staff and, and bring coaches on? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I go right back to, I think, I think past molds future. Um, that, that's certainly the way it is with me. And if my coach didn't give me a shot, I didn't have any coaching experience at all. You know, I just had drive, passion, um, and, and the right attitude. So that's what I look for. I don't look for a USPTA elite professional with 20 years of experience. I don't look for someone coming off the tour, not that they would look to my business anyway. Um, I'm not, it would be great to have that, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a hungry individuals that want to be a part of something that's growing, um, that want, that want the responsibility of it, that want to be able to bend and twist as needed and really just soak up information altogether. And I think that a coach starts with personality and finishes with education versus the other way around. Yeah. Experience doesn't always equal competence. And I think that that's probably true in most industries, right? So I like what you're looking for. I mean, I think that's, that's good. And the giving somebody a chance is, 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 is like you said, that's something that you got. And if you can detect that enthusiasm, the willingness to learn, and then also, obviously in this business, the willingness to work with others and help others be better. That's really, that's what, that's what it's all about. And that's the experience I think you're trying to bring or part of it, right, at, at Play Tennis Academy? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, that, that you hit the nail right in the head, honestly, because you cannot teach someone to be a certain way or, or maybe you can, but not, it doesn't go very far. You can teach someone how to look for technical flaws, build tactical components. You can build all of that uh, because it's education. It's something that you study. It's something that comes along the way. But an introvert is an introvert. An extrovert is an extrovert. Your upbringing is your upbringing. My upbringing is my upbringing. Um, and that's something I learned uh, at my past job at the Hall of Fame, where I was trying to fit myself into some sort of you know, weird professional position from, from an emotional standpoint. And then I realized that I got to where I am now being me, you know, having my own vocabulary, have my, having my own voice, being, I'm a knucklehead, being my own self, and then just instilling passion and that joy to people that I can. And Josh will talk about that a bit, but that's, that's the truth. It's it's true, no, and I think uh, I think that's that's an important key to um, whenever you're on court with somebody or really whatever you're you're doing to you know to to be true to actually who you are, and I think that that comes across strongly, um, you know, cer- certainly in the way that that you are on court, um, and I I try to tr- do the same, and I would also add in we were talking before about the the team environment, which is something that I I felt that you definitely instilled. Um, within the, at the Hall of Fame and within the team. I mean, I even think back to that that first day, the first day I was there, um, just you know grabbing grabbing a bite to eat, grabbing a beer right after work that first day. You know, starting that team environment um, and that camaraderie really from from the start. But I think you know to, to what you're saying is you know to letting letting your passion be known and you know really going forward with um, you know w- whatever you. You, you feel like you, you is most you is most in line with um, truly your personality. So I think it's awesome that over these past 
few months you've you've really been um creating something special with with play Ten, tennis academy yeah thank you yeah i definitely agree with you it's it's important to keep your own individuality and who you are um in all walks of life you know and, so what yeah. oh go ahead josh yeah no um so i guess um a, a question is what as you've as you've been um launching play tennis academy and expanding to different locations what have you found to be um some of the um, challenges and some of the successes along the route so far yeah absolutely i mean we're doing well um we're, we're it's all momentum honestly uh you know at the beginning when i moved here i, I knew two people uh, i knew two people and unless you're you know, engulfed in the industry, you probably don't know me. Um, certainly people and communities that aren't involved in tennis certainly don't know me. Um, so it really was just getting out there, you know, getting the brand out there, wearing the hat, meeting people, whether it be Zoom or whether it be um, face-to-face, you know, whatever they preferred. I can't tell you how many phone calls and emails I sent at the beginning, just just for people to be aware of me. I knew that I knew that cold calls and emails wouldn't necessarily work, but, um, you know, a month later, maybe they would because there's some sort of context. And as the days went on, I probably gained about 80 pounds because I was going out to dinners constantly and lunches constantly with, with people that I didn't know just to be a part of the community a little bit. And that speaks to what we're attempting to do as well. We're, we're looking to enhance communities so in order to hand, enhance communities, the first thing you have to do is be a part of the community. Um, so that was, that was really where all of the effort um, in the first couple months uh, really was put. Um, now we have some good momentum. Uh, we've partnered with three, and it's, it's going to be uh, four uh, locations, which has been great. We also have clients in different neighborhoods. Um, so that's great. And, and when I asked them, hey, how did you hear about us? Because we've done marketing. Um, the last couple of phone calls have been word of mouth. But that, that's exactly what you want to hear. Um, because that means people are talking about you in a positive way. So maybe we're doing something well. And that's a total credit to, to my coaches. Coach Emmett is excellent. We just hired a couple of guys too. Um, and now we're launching a property called Arden. And Arden is a um, developing community that will be eventually be 2,300 homes. And we're going to start in programming there on June 5th. And that was the one that I, that was the one that I saw, right? Yeah, it, it's amazing. I just toured it today again. Um, you know how, when you walk in the hall of fame, you walk in from the front entrance from Bellevue and it's just gorgeous. You know, it's, it's breathtaking. It doesn't matter what happens in that moment. It, there is, there is no prettier or, or it, at least is one of the most uh, amazing places to walk in as a tennis fan. And for this community, I kind of feel in a way at that sense where it's so impressive, uh, to be, a, to be in there, to be a part of that, to be partnered with that. Um, so early on, uh, it's, it's literally breathtaking. I sat there in my car. I couldn't believe it. Like just, just an hour and a half ago. Well, as we were saying before we started recording, you know, sort of let's circle back to mental toughness and, and you know, a little bit of sports psychology. Um, you know, mental toughness applies to all different areas. And as I'm listening to your story, Ryan, I imagine there's a, a level of mental toughness within you as a business person, not only as a coach and as a performer. 
maybe talk about your journey in, in with respect to that, because I think that it would be certainly something we can all learn from in terms of like what you think you got from your own personal mental toughness, what you had to do from a mental toughness perspective to be as successful as you are. Absolutely. I think that mental toughness it resides in every single aspect of life from getting out of bed and going to the gym to eating, eating a healthy meal to staying up with your buddies a little bit later than you wanted to, because you know, it means something, um, to, to, um, to business and certainly to tennis, um, as well as all sports. And so mental toughness for me is developed over time as you handle different situations. And for, as a coach, it's really important as a coach on court to understand that, understand that you're dealing with different individuals. They handle things differently, whether it be a loss, you know, being defeated or, or winning and how to best handle that and how to steer them in the right direction for themselves. Uh, so for me, it's a life lesson. I get better at it. I hope every year and in business, it's essentially being down two, four in a set and serving. That's what it felt like at the beginning of, of this journey. It felt like, you know, nobody's answering. Therefore, you know, maybe I'm missing, I'm missing my forehand more than I am. I'm overthinking things. You know, I'm trying really hard, but I'm not getting there. And oftentimes perseverance with a little bit of a shift can overtake, which I think uh, things happening in Rome right now, right? There's some there's some great matches happening right now. Rafa just lost, correct? No, he actually beat Shapovalov today. Oh, he beat him. My he dad told seven, me that he six. lost. Yeah. My dad, dad told me that, that he lost. Well, there you go, though, because he was down, correct? He let he down, down two big. match points, yeah. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, that's the difference between Rafa and Chapo, right? Or Rafa and almost everyone in the world. Yeah. That, that that is definitely true. There's a, a whole different level there in terms of him and those those top three guys. Um, to, to what you were saying um, before in terms of, um, you know, mental toughness applying to everything, um, which I is cer- certainly perspective I, I agree with. I mean, I know Brian um, as well. Um, how would you say as it relates to your coaching, how would you say that, that your perspective and sort of how you see um, coaching now and the coaches that you work for and work or work with and work work for you. Um, how has your coaching perspective and coaching philosophy changed over the years through your experiences? Yeah, that's a great question, man. Um, I think a couple different ways because you can you can take that question and run with it in a few different ways. For instance, if you're an assistant coach and you're looking to have some sort of financial life uh, that that suits your needs. And you're not getting, you know, your lessons, and all you're trying to do is spread the love of tennis, and also have a life doing it. Um, there's all sorts of different ways you can think of of within that question. I'll go to the court. Um, for me, I have gone through all sorts of different styles to ultimately to find who I am now. Um, you know, at one time I felt like I needed to prove to people that I was a good coach, and so I had to be you know, I was a little more strict and I was a little more snappy and it was really fully uh, my ego. I was letting my ego get in the way of me. I was like, you know, um, not the middle of my career, but maybe two thirds into my career where I felt like I could, I needed to flex my educational muscles. And if you weren't listening to me, then it was on you. 
when really it was on me, it was adapting to the personality that I was dealing with and educating them in a way that really resonated with them. Um, and that is certainly mental toughness because you have to look in the mirror and you have to say, hey, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say it's you. It's easy to, to say it's somebody else. Um, so that would be the way that I take that question the most, I would say. That reminds me of uh, the book Extreme Ownership by uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, um, where they, they talk about having this sense of, you know, if, if something goes wrong, trying to take an extreme ownership perspective of it, you know, like, how could I have made this better? Even if you weren't necessarily the direct responsible party for being in charge of that, that, you know, in all interactions that we're involved in, we can all take that perspective, you know, taking more responsibility to try to make things better. And so I, I like how you look at, yeah, a group is not functioning. It, it's not really fair to blame the players. It's, you know, what can I be doing better to make sure that I'm engaging with everybody and be matching their style? Um, oh, absolutely. So I, I, and I, and I even adapting. That. Yeah. That, thank you. And even adapting your style, you know. So many coaches get just get stuck in their ways to the point where, you know, it's the only way. Yeah, my and, way, and it's my way, uh, my way or the highway, right? Yeah, those are the ones that have the most growth to do because when you ap approach your profession as that, think about that in any other profession that makes literally no sense, none. Now, your base skills and your base knowledge uh, that that might carry through. And who you are certainly carries through. But if you're not uh, hiring your level of education, if you're not upping what you know, what you do, how you do it. Um, I mean, if you asked me what a kinesthetic learner at 16 years old was, I would have no idea what you're talking about. Right? So if I stuck to that way at 16 or 17 years old, then I would never, ever, ever be uh, the way that I am now and have the education that I am now. And even humbling meetings with, with uh, uh, Todd Martin and I had very, very humbling meetings for the first year that I was, um, I was at the Hall of Fame or maybe, maybe a year into it of developmental meetings where I'm sitting across from a guy that knows way more than me. And it's hard to check yourself. Um, you know, then you stare in a guy's eyes that's, a lot taller than you, that's a lot better than you, that Coach Djokovic, then you say, hey, maybe I should listen. <laughs> that definitely, yeah, that, that, that definitely makes sense. And uh, no, it's, it's interesting to hear about that, your, about your journey um, and, you know, how, how your perspective is, has changed along the way and how that perspective now, um, you know, up, applies to, to what you're doing now and how you work with, um, you know, the, the, the people that are working with you and what you're building with Play Tennis Academy. Would you say that that fits into the, the overarching philosophy of Play Tennis Academy and the type of experience that you want everyone to walk away with when they, when they play with you? Yes, 100%. Um, it's, it's really the, uh, the motivating factor of this uh, and this journey because what I'm looking to do is scale the sport. Um, and, and how, do, how do you do that? You know, what's going to keep someone involved in the sport? And if you think about why you're in the sport and what your journey was at the beginning, it probably had a component of enjoyment, probably enjoyed it, 
because maybe you were out there with your friends. Maybe you met new people. So there was a uh, sense of community that was, was shaped for you. Um, fun stuff happened. You did something that you enjoyed. You laughed. So you went for that. And ultimately, you appreciated the fact that you were getting better. But that was not the driving factor to keep you in the sport. And that's what we're trying to instill. It's called play tennis academy. And the, the play on word of that word is play. Yes. Play the sport where we stick to essentially everything interactive. It's almost all live. If you can't rally, then you're tossing. If you're, if you can toss, then you're bumping and creating the understanding of, of spacing, timing, balance, rhythm, movement, instead of becoming so fixated on having a semi-Western grip, a high to low to high forehands and, and stances. You know, oftentimes people learn stances because you worked on the tracking components of the sport first. If you look at baseball players, they step on the tennis court. You don't have to teach them a thing about their feet. I mean, barely ever because they've played a different sport that has taught them how to bring a ball in, space the ball to catch, turn to throw, rip it through with their, their rotation so all of those things are so well learned. It's very, very simple to adapt them into a tennis player. So we just become over, overly technical. I think you're also hitting on some stuff about youth development and the idea of like early sampling of multiple sports because they teach you a lot of different things. Like as you said about the baseball player, I've seen that with hockey players that they just step on to the tennis court and their footwork is already perfect. They're so yeah. easy to, to work with. Um, and, and so one of the things I think that is also beneficial when we do that early sampling piece is helping players, uh, and I love the name of the company because it's play, like deliberately play, like create some of their own games, let them drive a little bit about their own practices and so forth. So I'm wondering, is that also part of what you're trying to do, Ryan? Like get them to, to just deliberately play? Yes, 100%. Uh, that's something that Josh and I talked about when I was at the Hall of Fame too. It's get them playing matches, right? And the only way that you're going to get them to play matches is to teach them that matches are fun. And the only way that you're going to do that is instilling match play within your practices often. Like they, they should show up and want to go play a match more so than play a group game. Event, eventually that's where it needs to go. If you stay with the group games and you don't teach them the fun of serving movement and how, what, what a return can do to the point and get them into that, you know, focus and talk about that's all, uh, certainly the mental side of things. Then, then what are you going to have? You're going to have a ground stroke player that ultimately caps out because they can't go to the next level. But if you, but if you use, you know, that mental almost, um, what do I want to call it? Uh, if, if you can almost fool them into understanding what's actually true, which is the matches, the fun of the sport and put that into each practice. Well, there you go. You don't have to, you don't have to, uh, you know, convince them at all. It's already there. Yeah. I think you're hitting on the right theme of fun. Right? So as you were talking again, it made me think about uh, this fun integration theory, which has a lot of different aspects of what makes sport fun for players and athletes. And, you know, you're hitting on, you know, learning and improving 
But one of the things I think is really important in there that I think you're putting into your business is this idea of being a positive coach and encouraging the kids and really um, adapting what you do so that they can bring out their best and they want to be there and that they do have fun. And like, that's important for you and it's important for them. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know what tennis is missing is population in America and what's going to populate the sport is them enjoying going out with a bunch of people and, and playing, truly playing the sport, whether it's with a coach, without a coach. And that is without question from a junior standpoint, what we're attempting to create. Um, you know, they're not, they're not coming there to learn a technically perfect backhand forehand serve, you know, eventually they're going to want to beat their friend and that's going to bring them into a lesson of, Hey, this is the shape or, Hey, this is the contact or, or what have you. Um, but what's going to keep, keep them in up to that point is going to be exactly what you just mentioned. Enjoy yourself, have a great time doing it. Um, there should be really no negativity out there. Even if you have someone that's, you know, just acting up like crazy, well, you can't get mad at them. You have to find the reason and respect who they are and ultimately sit down and talk about it. No, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, a lot of that resonated with me. I mean, I, I often will say that um, as I'm teaching a lesson, the, the biggest thing that's going to help somebody improve is to keep playing. So if they play consistently over time, they will improve. Um, and if they enjoy the lesson, if they enjoy tennis and the improvement process, then guess what? They're going to keep playing where, okay, even if they have the best possible lesson and they learned, you know, certain technical aspects of the forehand and, um, you know, we're making great changes in different aspects of their game. If they don't enjoy it, if they don't leave that, that lesson with a smile on their face, they're not going to, they're not going to keep playing. They're not going to play regularly. And guess what? They're that improvement process is going to stop. Um, so that's the first point. The other thing I'll say is, Ryan, as you were bringing up the point about match play, that's that's something definitely that I, I found in my in my research, in my master's dissertation, that um, a lot of college coaches had brought up the importance of match play and of simulating match experiences within practice, um, which is definitely something I try to do within my coaching. And I, I think, you know, I try to include with just about every lesson, at least some part of it is um, we're, we're playing points. We're putting it all together, which is oftentimes, especially with the more beginner level player, uh, the, the most challenging piece where, you know, they're, we're spending time in the forehand we're sp- and forehand and backhand. We're spending time in the volley on the serve and maybe the return. And okay, now let's put it all together, which, you know, is going to be more realistic to what you're actually going to get. It's not realistic to just say, okay, we're, we're feeding. Okay. We're going to do this whole um, basket of balls and then we're going to do another basket of balls and then another basket, but it's, it is important to, to put it all together. Um, and I, I like that, um, you know, through our conversations um, at the hall of fame, we were able to instill the, uh, the match play, um, the, the match play tournaments that we did with the, uh, the orange, green, yellow ball kids. I think that was definitely um, has definitely been well-received. I think the kids really look forward to it now where they say, okay, you know, we're, I'm playing once a week, twice a week, three times, whatever it may be. Now let's, let's put those skills to the test. Let's, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. This is a great opportunity and, and it's fun. Yeah, it's not, you don't want to say, do you want to play? You want to say, who do you want to play? Who do you want to play? You want the kids to come in and think, 
I mean, I want to, I want to play Johnny today. You know, he got me last time and I want to play that guy because then teaching tennis becomes a heck of a lot easier. You know, a kid is going to want to know why his forehand flied or why he can't put spin the way that Eric does or Susie does on their second serve. And they're going to be curious. If you're curious, then you're going to learn something. If you're, if you're preached something, then it most likely will not retain. Uh, and if it does retain, it's going to take a lot of time. So if we can, if we can keep that, you know, as, as American tennis coaches uh, or just coaches in general, if we can teach that and keep that as our focus, then maybe we can get somewhere, uh, somewhere that we want to go with, with our generation and the next generation. Sort of reminds me of how I grew up playing tennis. So I'm older than you guys, and uh, sort of pre academy days. Even you know here how in New England, fifty three. Okay, you look. You don't look a day over fifty four. <laughs> yeah, well, there. Thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, no, you look great. But we pro- we probably played matches at least eighty to ninety percent of our day of our training was was playing. And you know, very rarely would, would be doing doing drills, and I think that just allowed um, us to to, like you said, just want to play more and make it fun. And I remember when I was ten, I had this great match against this kid named David Schreiner. So David was two years older than than me, and it was a close match. And he had never really paid much attention to me, but I gave him a close match. He asked me to play every single day after that. And they, that's the right attitude from a, a you know a twelve year old kid. He just wanted to play and play and play. And even though I was ten, you know, he helped me understand that much yeah. more. And it was so cool to have somebody like him want to play with me. And even even that's something we can be working on within our programs. Is you know, hey, can we have the older kids bring along some of the younger ones? And maybe not even care so much about age, but is it, it could it be about ability level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Clayton Vodders uh, runs the NJTL program up there, or has a, a very big uh, portion to run up there. And he's great with developing the kids, and he has a ton of passion. And I remember when that program launched a couple of years ago, um, it was Clayton, myself, uh, Marcelo, and a couple other guys up at the Hall of Fame. And I remember Clayton, Clayton went around and I believe that he would dropped off equipment, if I'm not mistaken, or, 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 or something to that extent. I might be butchering the store a little bit, a little bit, but the point of the story was he sent me a picture of two of the kids playing tennis in the, in the street, right? Now, not in, in the main street, you know, just in their neighborhood street. And to look at two kids within the, NG, in the NJTL program that had never played tennis in their lives to for Clayton to just drive past their neighborhood, just, just out of curiosity and to be able to capture that picture of them rallying was unreal to me, you know, cause that, and that resonates so well with me because I'm not from wealth. I'm not from, my family did everything they could to, to have me train. And it was, it was excellent. I mean, they, they, they provided me lessons and they provided me clinics um, even when perhaps they couldn't, who knows? But but they did they did that. But my start was really going out in the court, hitting against the ball the, the wall, and then finding a friend, and then going and literally playing the sport, and then watching tennis, and then going playing again. And and that's lost a little bit within 
the American tennis culture. No, I, I agree. And I, I think that the uh, the watching piece and especially as someone's learning the sport, um, following the professional game, um, you know, whether it be watching matches on online or on TV and, uh, and at the Hall of Fame, we're fortunate that we have a professional tournament. And I think, you know, certainly encouraging kids and, and all sorts of players to be able to to watch that in person to, to learn from the best. Um, but I, I think that is an important piece. And it was definitely an important part of my childhood, my development as a tennis player as well. Just think back to, you know, staying up late watching matches in Australia at three, four in the morning um, or, or whatever it is. And I think, you know, through that, you learn, you, you watch that, Hey, this, this player is getting nervous at, um, you know, five all in the tie break. Okay. So when I get nervous like that, that, you know, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. That means, you know, even the best players in the world get nervous in those situations or you see, okay, um, you know, this, this player is, um, is beating this other player because they're really picking on that player's uh, weakness or whatever it is. But, you know, you, you learn from those experiences from watching the top players. And I, I do agree that that's something that's missing right now. I even know with, you know, players that I talk to, um, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate that fewer and fewer players are really, following the sport or really as engaged as, um, you know, maybe, maybe in the past. And, uh, yeah, curious if, if either of you have thoughts on how, you know, that, that piece, that watching and following piece, um, you know, we can help people to, uh, you know, to find, to find that passion or to, to get more and more into the sport. And maybe it is just, you know, really enjoying the sport and falling in love with the sport. And once that happens, then they'll want to, you know, dive into every single piece, watching the sport, reading books about it, um, just learning about it, being a real student of the game in terms of being I think a that, player. Yeah, I think that, I think that uh, there's a two part to that. And one of it is uh, tennis being more creative. Um, from a viewership standpoint, uh, if you look at, if you look at different sports, they, they adapt based on the times and, and, you know, tennis is, a, uh, is brought upon, you know, technology and they've done a little bit better with that. But one thing I thought they did really well, which, which goes straight to your point, Josh is um, what's it called? The ultimate tennis showdown. Is that what it was? Um, um, with Moritoglu. Patrick Moritoglu. So, so interesting. Right. And the, the ability to put on the headset and listen to your coach uh, during the changeover and, and for us to be able to listen to it, like the inside edition was uh, such a great piece for coaches, for viewers, for players, for people that don't know uh, what the heck they're watching. Um, you know, that, and, and what do they, they always talk about? They, they don't talk about, they don't talk about their grip. They don't talk about uh, an open stance. They talk about how to handle the situation, how to handle the situation coming up. And then they typically, based on what's happening, will encourage them to find their balance within that moment. So if they just had a really tough time, hey, next points. If they just had a really great point, hey, keep it up. It's our job to understand the rhythm as coaches and the player's job to take that in to create a mentally tougher uh, player over the long term. I think also, oh yeah. Yep. So I wanted to answer your question, Josh. You know, because I a lot of the players I'm working with actually do seem to watch a lot of tennis. Actually, I had one kid who was watching tennis while he's talking to me. So it's <laughs> so, like, hey, <laughs> stop giving me play. match reports, man. <laughs> but that's great. I mean, I encourage that. You know, um, 
And when we talk about watching players, there's also a lot of research about how watching players and then visualizing yourself playing like them is really beneficial to your physical performance. And I think that's something that we can encourage more as coaches is like, hey, you want to get better? Hey, let's watch this like short two-minute video of what these guys are doing. Um, I remember a few years ago, you know, I think another fun aspect for, for young players too is copying the best pros. So I remember, again, I'm dating myself here, but back in the 80s when Yannick Noah and Andre Agassi started hitting tweeners, became very popular. And it sort of got revised, I think, in the 2000s. A lot of people started doing that. When Roger Federer was doing the saber, right, the sneak attack by Federer, um, you know, uh, players started doing that. Now, nobody's doing it anymore because he doesn't do it anymore. But um, when he was doing it, I saw it all the time at, like, academy practices. Kids are just taking their turn and coming in. And that's great to see that, you know, help them to be to be creative. And I think, you know, a lot of it can be us on as coaches to encourage even them to watch. Hey, just watch a couple of minutes here with me. You know, last night I was watching – working with a high school doubles player. So we watched some some Davis Cup doubles between Federer and Vavrinka and Beneteau and Gasquet. And just like, all right, where are they hitting the ball? What are they doing between points? What are you noticing? What, are you, what can you pick up from that? And I think even just as whether we're tennis coaches or sports psych coaches, we can really help encourage some of that watching and learning. Now, part of it's also like having a hero, you know? And, and to your point with the different shots, I mean, now it's the underhand serve, right? Where you on the court and inevitably one of your kids is going to do the underhand serve. And instead of saying, don't do that, give them a smile and say, Hey, how'd that go? You know, yeah, creative, you know, but, but we had heroes growing up. All of us had heroes growing up. I mean, watching Andre and Pete and Todd was a part of that. Michael Chang, we just had such a powerhouse of players. And before that, obviously Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, the list goes on and on. Um, now we don't have that for American tennis players. And there's, there's really no excuse other than we're not, we're not keeping the athletes. Uh, I, don't, I can't see any other reason. We're, we're an enormous country full of a ton of ex- exceptional athletes that excel pretty much in every other sport. Um, so why, why can't we break the top 10, which is a big you know, question. But to have that would be fantastic. You know, when Tiafo was coming up, maybe he was the next guy. And now we have, now we have, you know, Riley Opelka coming up and serving from seven feet tall. And, you know, if he gets there, he gets there, but it's, it's tough to, for us to relate to his game. You know, we need someone that's within the six range, six foot range, six, two range that has something great, but, you know, is ultimately performing at a level of top five caliber. Do you think, and this is, uh, I haven't really run this by anybody, but do you think the fact that, we're funneling so many players to just college tennis that we're lowering the bar in a way. Like I don't really hear about a lot of kids training to be pros. I hear lots of kids. Oh, I want to play college tennis. And it's much, there's nothing wrong with college tennis, of course. And it is a high level of play, but it is, you know, you talk to a European kid, that's not what they're looking to do. They're training to be pros. And I'm just curious if, if either of you have thought about that. I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, um, it's interesting. And it's also interesting who, who the college players are in America. You know, a lot of them are not American. Right. And, and why is that? And, and look, it probably has a lot to do with even our, even our 
great players aren't a lot of them aren't mentally strong enough to handle handle the moment um, and get to that next level. I mean, you, you, I can name out a couple guys where you just wonder why they didn't didn't get there. And look, it takes a really special person. But I don't know. We we you know our journey as as tennis players or or the tennis players out there, um, their journey in America isn't quite quite the same as as other places in the world you know the trials and tribulations and what they have to go through i mean you open up facebook and if you're connected to the tennis world you know how are you going to compare to a guy that's literally learning on dirt you know uh, i mean you want to you want to compare passion with that guy or or drive very difficult to do when you're asking for a hundred dollars an hour private lesson um and i'm not not to say that that the pricing is wrong with, with lessons, maybe just our approach to development and, and, and to instill that passion can be altered. You know, there's room for both. Yeah. Yeah. I actually thought some years ago, you know, what, what, how do other sports bring people in? And a lot of times it's, they create a team environment. They give players uniforms and, and, you know, it's almost like, can we have, and maybe this is going to be part of play tennis Academy. Can we have, you know, almost like a little league of tennis where you've got teams, people have uniforms, they're playing against each other in matches, they're with friends, right? Um, and, and that's, I think, a lot of other sports have, have captured, as you said, a lot of other athletes that could have gone into tennis. Exactly. And that is what we're doing. Um, so from a swagger standpoint, I actually have a meeting with our, our uh, marketing person tomorrow. All we're wondering is hat. Uh, shirt or water bottle, but we're going to give every single person that signs up with us uh, one of those three things. So to create an instant uh, team behind that, uh, every single uh, community that signs up with us, we're going to intertwine them within different events. So juniors versus juniors, teams versus teams, adults versus adults, and hold it at different facilities each year. You know, make it something, uh, add a trophy. I mean, you know, enjoy it. Um, and, and I, and absolutely, I think that that should exist for instance, um, for, if I keep mentioning the hall of fame, cause I was just there and Josh is currently there, you know, you take the Rhode Island, um, and like Southeastern Massachusetts clubs and instead of, you know, JTT is great, but expand on that. You know, you take hall of fame versus, you know, so-and-so club and, and Cape Cod and, you know, and have that happen each weekend. The kids will, in fact, get into that if they're given the opportunity of it, you know, and you can't just let it die. Let it, let it, let it start, let it build, and let's see what happens in five years. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about the, the match play piece, um, but having, yeah, being a part of a team, being, you know, that the, the community. And I think that the research, you know, certainly shows um, that that relatedness piece within um, self-determination theory and, you know, feeling motivated to continue playing the sport is huge. You know, when you're part of that team, you're not going to want to miss that week to, to miss that weekend and miss that big match. Cause you want to be there. You want to contribute. You want to cheer your teammates on. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I think back to my own experiences 
and, you know, I started playing the sport um, and was playing tournaments and then, and which is a similar situation to many others. Once high school tennis and then college tennis came around, um, it was totally different ballgame. I loved being on the team. I loved, um, you know, leading others and being led by others and just being around. Um, a lot of my closest friends came from, came from those experiences. So I think if we can, um, as, you know, coaches and um, professionals in the field, if we can, uh, you know, help instill those sorts of environments where uh, kids are looking forward to, to being there, to seeing all their buddies, to maybe there's a rivalry against one of their friends on the team or, you know, within the same club, or maybe it's that rivalry against uh, the other club that's, you know, half hour away, an hour away. Um, I think the more that, you know, that can happen, um, that kids will really look forward to being there and being part of that competitive environment. You can even look all the way to the professional tour and talk about one of the best talents that we have out there is Nick Curios. He's an incredible talent. He's incredible to watch. And he's also incredible to use that word three times in a team setting. He's fantastic. And that's what he probably loves about basketball because he expresses that he loves basketball so much that camaraderie and doing, doing it for not just yourself. And the challenge for Nick at this point is taking that same attitude and same purpose and applying that to his box, to his, to his coaching team, to his physio team and saying, Hey, I'm going to look to you guys. I'm not going to let you down, you know, because that's, that seems to be something that he needs instead of him just kind of being out there and going through the motions. And man, if he could do that, you know, if he just gives a couple years of that, he's going to really, really love what happens to his game. I, I've said, I've told uh, Josh this, I've said this to many people, his coach should be Allen Iverson. You know, Allen Iverson was a dude that was just naturally gifted, hated practice. Nick Curios obviously hates practice, but he never took a playoff when he played ever. He was the ultimate competitor, even though he has a very similar sort of mind and skill set as Nick. So adapt that into play. Um, and, and, and however fast that you're able to do that. And maybe you got, maybe you got a top, top three, top five player. Yeah, I think of, and I actually grew up as a, uh, as an Iverson fan and as a, as a Sixers fan, I actually went to Sixers basketball camp back, back in the day. Um, and, uh, the other thing about Allen Iverson is he, he really squeezed every single ounce out of his potential, probably the smallest guy on court. Most of the time, um, they, they said he was six feet, but I think probably that was being generous. Um, yeah. Definitely under under six feet, but was able to the the heart, the determination, and as you said, yeah, never took a playoff, never took even a second off. To me, I look at someone like a David Ferrer, um, someone in tennis, even like a Brad Gilbert, as somebody who you know tries to get every single ounce out of that potential and is um, you know realizes that um, that's that's what they need to do to succeed. Um, and I think it's, I think it's tough trying to, um, as you know, we talk more about high performance tennis, um, how to, um, you know, help players reset in between points and, you know, really have that feeling that every, that each point is the most important point, which is actually a theme that we've, we've talked about here in past episodes, um, whether it be routines that you use or whether it be, 
um, you know, in, incorporating, uh, you know, mindfulness and, um, you know, the breath and trying to reset in between points. But it's, it's, I think to me, that's one of the most challenging parts of being a competitor that whatever's happened in the past, whatever might happen, we got to be able to put that aside. We got to be able to put our ego aside or that, that boredom that you might be experiencing or, Oh, why am I out here playing? Maybe Nick is feeling, why am I out here playing this guy who's 55 in the world when, you know, I should be, um, you know, why am I wasting my time here? And then you see his attitude against somebody like that compared to when he plays the big three, when he is dialed in every point. So I I think as coaches and as sports psych professionals, that that is one of the the biggest challenges to help people find that mentality of never taking a playoff because it is, it's just so rare. Yeah. I think it's all about finding, finding how, how to instill that when that time comes. Uh, My coach, when I was uh, Andy, Andy taught me to get out the court. You know, he said, uh, when I was playing someone, you know, as I was getting a little bit better and you're playing, you know, you're playing high school, public high school players, you know, some of them are really good and some of them, yeah, haven't played a lick of tennis and, and, you know, it's just not a tennis school. Um, and we were probably maybe a little bit in the middle. We were pretty good at sports, um, my high school, but you know, we were still, we were so new, but you know, I played someone that wasn't up to, to my talent. Um, you know, it's hard to get up for those matches other than the fact that you just, you love tennis, but you always want to play someone that's comparable to you or, you know, someone better than you. We hear that all the time on the court. Um, parents preach that as well, but there's such a skill in being able to play uh, at your level when you're playing a, a lower level. And that's, it's how do you find that influence? Um, so as I said, get off the court. He was like, see how fast, you can get off the court. And then he would give me a tactic, like use this tactic within this match to practice this, right? And to, to create that. But let's see if you can get off the court in 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And I never told anyone that. I never told my teammates that. I never told my parents that. I certainly never told my opponent that because I promise you there are people that got off me off, me off the court in, in less than 30 minutes. But uh you know, ultimately it was something that just added, it was just, it wasn't everything. It was just something else that I could look to, to motivate me when I was, when it was six Oh four up, you know, or, or maybe I lose a couple of points and it's like, Oh man, what am I, what am I doing? You know, gets me out of that rut. Well, I think that kind of points to in those situations, what we want to be doing for players is giving them challenges, giving them extra challenges that can still improve their game. Um, so that they don't have to worry about the level anymore. It's like, all right, now I can just focus on, all right, coach wants me to serve volley in this one or you know, some other tactic. That's what I'm just going to do, and I'll do that. And because they're so much more focused, what happens? They probably play better, and they win more efficiently than if their focus had been too, so broad about, like, why am I playing this kid or um, I can't lose to this kid, my UTR is going to go down or all these other things. Mm-hmm. By narrowing that focus back down to a specific set of challenges, you know whether that's time or a tactic or or whatever, um, yeah, you can get people to play better against lower level players because guess what? You're going to play lots of people if you if you're going to have a competitive career. You're going to be playing probably a third of people who are not as good as you, a third of the people who are probably as good, and a third that are better. So why not practice playing all three of those audiences? Yeah, and what do you guys think about? you know, the, the, the change in culture with winning and losing, um, you know, it's something that very much I, I'm against. And the reason that I'm against is because I'm a coach and I know how important it is. 
for development. Um, and that's just my own opinion, but I see, I see this, this approach to where, uh, you know, goals, goals and soccer aren't counted or, you know, a match is played, but there is no score. And it's for us as a coach, it's, it's detrimental to a player, but it's also detrimental to the coach because there, you don't get the ability to look that guy in the eyes or girl in the eyes and coach them through that and, and, and really find out what they're made of and where they are. You know, there's, it's almost, there's almost not an identity at that point. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think, uh, you know, as, as I've talked about with both of you, you know, every, every situation, whether it's a win, whether it's a loss, um, whether you played great or played some of the worst tennis of your life, there's, there's something to be learned from, from each situation. And, and I would agree with what you're saying, Ryan, that, um, you know, taking away, taking that away, which, you know, do, you do see at times um, is, is detrimental because you, you miss out on those learning experiences. I think sport gives us, um, gives, you know, everybody, particularly kids that are learning and developing um, a, a lot of life lessons. And if, you know, if you take away the score, you take away those winning and losing components, um, then, then you're missing out on that. Yeah. And that's, that's a great point. You know, it's not about, it's not even about the sport because how many people are going to play, uh, you know, professional tennis, you know, um, it's just so, so rare, but those, and we touched about, uh, touched in on this, touched it on this, excuse me, uh, earlier on is how does it apply to your business life? How does it apply to your relationship? You know, um, it, it, it's amazing what sport can teach you if you allow it to teach you. So maybe we go back to that a little bit more, you know, nothing wrong with taking a couple steps back to, to jump forward. Well, I also, you know, hitting on that point, I would frame it a little bit differently. I think sport, I think is neutral when it comes to teaching character. I think it's the environment that one finds him or herself in sport. So for example, you know, Ryan, if your place was all about authoritarian dictatorship and we're going to, you know, punish, that's not going to be a great sport. That's not a, a character building program, right? So we can't say yeah. that that's tennis's fault. Um, and so I think we just have to be aware of people who are in tennis. Tennis is, tennis is totally neutral in terms of how it develops your character. It's got a lot to do with us and the environment that we create around that. Um, and I, I think that's what's important, you know, and we're, when we start designing how we're going to teach players, you know, whether it's, all right, maybe we are playing some games without points or without a score. Maybe that does have some purpose, right? Maybe, maybe your player is so nervous or about the score. We need to just do a little bit of that. But of course, we have to play with the score as well, right? Because I'll go back to what you were saying earlier, part of your business thing, Ryan. You felt like you were down 2-4 in serving. So what do you need there, right? I mean, there, there's a journey to 2-4. How do you deal with that, right? The emotions yep. of that. But then also, how do you stay focused on the moment, but also keep your eyes toward the ultimate goal and not and, and be able to kind of simultaneously have both of those things going on in your mind? Because um, you got to know what you're working toward, right? And in, in, in a set, that's getting to six. So if I'm down to four, hey, I'm still in it. I can still get to six maybe a little less probability on my side that I'll get there. 
But if I keep working and doing, following my process, hey, good chance I'm going to get the success that I want. And uh, yeah. so again, this is something you're teaching your players through play much more often. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I know of a coach uh, in the South um, and he is a huge proponent of momentum. And that, that's a major part of his teaching every single day, every single week, every single month to the point where he, he charts momentum through a two to one scale. And so if you, you have to win, he'll, he'll put a game, different games where you have to win two points in order to get a point. Right. And if you don't, then it just resets. Ultimately you have to win two more, two to one and tennis in order to win. Um, and to be able to train them to push through the one, one and get that next point. Or if they're down Oh one, to get the next point and then two more, right? That is going to simulate uh, the break points on both sides. I like that. I like that. And it's, uh, reminds me of certain, um, other, other games that I've done where, um, and maybe, maybe you guys have done as well in terms of manipulating the score to make things, you know, more difficult for one player or the other doing things like, you know, dice breakers, where you start a tiebreaker, one player's ahead or behind. And, uh, I think those sorts of experiences, uh, help, help players because it's, you, you learn these different situations that you're likely to find in a match. Okay. I, this one, I'm coming back from behind this one. I'm, I have the lead and I have to try to hold on to it. And I think, um, as coaches, you know, trying to put players in these types of situations and simulate situations that you might be in, in a match or, um, like you're talking about trying to win, you know, two points to one, um, will help you for when you're actually in those match situations. I think that's how we can do a service to our players by best preparing them for what they'll, they'll ultimately encounter in, on match day. Oh man, it's so much fun to throw in different games, right? Like, you, you know, the only, you only get the second serve. Oh coach, come on, man. <laughs> or like, uh, you know, Hey, you're playing, you know, Hey John, you're playing Billy. Now Billy is, not nearly as uh, as uh, a player that John is, but John, excuse me, uh, Billy is going to start with forty, and you're going to start with love every single game. Oh, come on, coach, come on! But man, that's going to doesn't that perk perk them up? I mean, they don't they don't want to lose, you know. And shoot, if they make it make it challenging like that, then it's ultimately going to just keep them engaged. They're going to come back with. There's going to be some sort of moment that they're going to talk about and they're not going to forget it. They're going to drive home thinking about it and they're going to come back with that marinated into their minds, their bodies, and ultimately that point where John is playing a lesser Billy is going to matter when he is playing this in the state tournament. It's going to be that same euphoria, that same you know breakthrough. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as, as coaches, you know, the, the more that we can um, give, give players those opportunities for those breakthroughs, for those, those memorable moments, um, then all the better. I mean, I, I, I think those, you know, those tournaments that we, um, that, that we, you know, recently have created at the hall of fame is an example to, you know, I, I think of one kid in particular who um, had never played in, you know, a tournament or any sort of competitive situation. And uh, he came in second. And he got the medal and, uh, you know, just just seeing that look on his face and on his mom's face um, when she picked him up is just, you know, I think those memorable moments are what can help somebody stick around in, in the sport. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And it's great from a coaching perspective to see that as well, right? Doesn't Isn't that what helps you guys stay in the sport? No question about it. As a coach, I mean, what's better as a coach than seeing someone that you've been on the court with? You know, you look in their eyes and you see the same passion that, that you have and had at their age. There's nothing like it. Or, 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 you know, an adult coach, same thing. You know, they come back after a, you know, a, a league, a league match or what have you. And the tactic that you were working on worked. And I mean, how many times have you taught the same doubles trail over and over and over for five years to ultimately have a team do it in a match? My gosh, imagine coach, it worked. Why didn't you tell us this sooner? You're right. I should have told you this sooner. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, you know, it's a great moment. Absolutely. Um, well, I think as we start to start to wrap things up, um, and this is this has been an awesome awesome conversation, um, Ryan. Any any last um, you know uh, takeaways for for our audience about um, some of your experiences about um, what you're doing right now with uh, with Play Tennis Academy? Um, you know, I guess to leave it here, since this is sports psych, right? It's all about the mental side of of a lot of different things, um, but as it pertains to the sport of tennis. Um, I would challenge our coaches um, that are listening and that that they work with to to get a little bit more mentally tough uh, when speaking about how to develop, how to how to retain um, uh, tennis uh, players, how to populate tennis, and um, I think that if we look in the mirror, then then it's that's only fair uh, when we're asking our players to do so as well. And if we all do that, if we all make that effort and we populate this sport the way that it should be, because it's such a fun sport and my gosh, it matters for your whole life. Um, then, then maybe we move the needle to the point where, you know, we've, we've done something, you know, our generation of coaches have, have done something for something that's done something so much for, for us. That's good. Uh Go ahead. No, yeah, that, was no, off the, that was off the head, by the way. I didn't, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, write that, that down. Okay. <laughs> listeners out there. Good off the cuff answer. And I think it's right. You know, we as coaches, we're performers too. And why shouldn't we adopt some of the same um, habits and routines that we are asking players to adopt, right? Even if it's just doing some self-reflection on what we could be better, what went well for us today, you know, what... What did I do well today in my practice? What could have been better? What was an interaction maybe I could have handled better? And, you know, going through that reflection piece, I think sometimes people in the business get a little fixated on the whole business aspect of things and forget about the practice aspect of being a coach or a pro or a sports psych professional. And that's really what's going to make make things um, better for all of our students and clients, I think. So I'll let you wrap it up, Josh. Yeah. Can yeah, I no, just make, not to interrupt you, man, but if I, I just, you know, we don't have the football coach walking through the hall, hallway saying play, play the sport. Yeah. You know, tennis doesn't have that. It doesn't have the funding that, that a sport like that has. Um, it doesn't have, you know, at the beginning that team environment either. You know, we, we need to recruit and we need to, we need to make the effort to go out of, if you work at a club or in terms of bio business, it's just, just all about expansion of the sport. So if we all do that, um, then, Hey, we have some new players and who knows who that player 
uh, how, how that player will take the sport and, and run with it. Who knows? Right. No, I, I love that in terms of making it a team environment and making it, you know, all about play and all about um, fun. And in terms of, you know, populating the sport, getting more, more and more people involved. And you teach this one kid seven years old and um, you look back at him, you know, 10 years later and 15 years later, and no, you, you can certainly inspire somebody and lead them on a, on an amazing journey. I mean, thinking back to, um, you know, my own journey and, you know, what's brought me here. And I'm sure um, for our listeners, you know, you think back to that coach that got you started or when you started playing the sport and uh, yeah, what certainly no regrets in, in getting involved um, and really, really love what, what you're doing, Ryan, in terms of um, inspiring more and more people to get involved in the sport, to play and to enjoy the sport. Cause ultimately that's what'll help them to be lifelong players of the sport of tennis. Um, well, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us today. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, and I, I certainly encourage everyone to uh, check out play tennis Academy and see um, what Ryan is doing, what, um, wonderful work that is is going going on with play tennis academy and uh, thanks for thanks for being here yeah thank you guys for having me i have one challenge for all of you listeners it's to after this podcast after you listen to this i want you to go out and play tennis within 24 hours uh you might challenge uh, your neighbor or or the person that just beat you or it might be the very first time that you've ever played the sport that's my challenge to you let me know how it goes love it Love it. Well, thank I you, Ryan. you too, by the way. Not I'll be on court tomorrow. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Ryan. Well, that was a great conversation, uh, Brian. And uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways I had um, was really about this idea of play. And uh, I think it's such a pivotal concept within the business that it's, it's a part of, part of the name itself um, that, in order for people to become lifelong players of the sport, lifelong tennis fans and lifelong tennis players, that they need to enjoy that process. And um, part of enjoying that process is to play, is to um, play games, to play points. Um, we're not talking about you know neglecting the technical piece, but um, to make sure that you're you know tra- competing and playing points and uh, having fun along the way. And I think. Uh, that that certainly reson that that part of the conversation certainly resonated with me. I agree. Uh, to me, that was the biggest takeaway: is play and fun, and how, in a way, the industry has gotten a- away from that a bit. Think of many of the players that we work with. Most of them, not most of them, a lot of them don't see, say, competition or tournaments as fun. They, have, they haven't integrated that into their sort of fun model <laughs> where I think, you know, what Ryan is talking about is we need to create um, an environment early on where people want to play tournaments because they are fun, because we yeah. are playing. And we, we often talk about playing matches, but it's almost like the play piece and the fun piece have been sucked out of it a bit. And if we could more intentionally reinsert some of that, I think we would really be helping uh, players across the board from a tennis perspective to to simply play better in competition. I think enjoyment is such a huge part of that. And if we can remember that playing and fun should be probably a couple of the central pillars 
of tennis, it gives you a much better perspective on 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 how to handle competition and pressure and and so forth. So um, I hope what people get out of it is let's just go out and play and um and 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 when a match is over, then you go play again and you constantly get to you know use that that process. So I thought it was really really great conversation and. Um, so I want to, you know, and certainly on behalf of you, Josh, thank Ryan again for coming on. So thank you, Ryan, Harry, for for being on the on the show today. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or question on today's episode or anything, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. We're also putting up new notifications on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.